The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans we're discussing before you listen to this podcast. Welcome to Slate's TV Club Insider Podcast for Season 3, Episode 2 of The Americans. In this episode, we're going to talk about bad breakups, breaking down Annalise's body and all that entailed in shooting that sequence, landing big emotional arcs with our producing director, Dan Sackheim. We're going to talk about spy gear, including KGB cameras versus FBI cameras, and what Joe Weisberg can't say and how we have to redact our scripts and ourselves when talking about a lot of the spy craft that involves Joe's time at the CIA. I'm Molly Nussbaum, the script coordinator here at The Americans. We are here again today on our sound stages in Gowanus, Brooklyn. And I'm here with my bosses, Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg, and the big boss, our producing director, the great Dan Sackheim. Hi, guys. Hey. 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 So, Dan, you directed an episode first season of The Americans, a very well-known episode, Trust Me, or as most people know it, the episode where Carrie Russell punches Margot Martindale in the face. My favorite moment. We talk about that like almost every day that comes up for one reason or another. It came up today. And boy, she doesn't just punch her in the face once. She punches her and punches her. Beats her face in. It's a good, good, good old fashioned. You standing in the cutting room, something like "Go, go, KGB." (laughs) What was that? Uh, I think he he, Joe. We're editing that. Yes, he left to his feet and started chanting KGB. I got a little. I got a little overexcited. It was a great moment. I think mm-hmm. you might have taken the wrong thing away from that scene, but that's that's okay. Uh, and then starting last season, you joined us as a producing director, which means you direct a few episodes for us. And, well, can you explain a little bit about how you advise besides directing some episodes? You want me to talk about the bossing around part or the creative part? Is there another part besides uh, the bossing around part? There is another part. Um, <laughs> You know, early on when we talked about sort of rejiggering the show from the first season to the second season, we talked about sort of what's the style. And I think one of the things we landed on was sort of aping this kind of uh, these political thrillers from the 70s and the 80s, the great Alan J. Pakula movies like Clute and All the President's Men. And so that gave us a template to start with. And we talk a lot about that. We talk about also scope and scale in the context of uh, establishing the world visually, but also kind of the idea of showing s- small people big problems. So that was part of the learning process for me, which has been slowly imparted to the directors and gets imparted to the directors whenever we are breaking down a script and we're ever deciding what locations to shoot. But I also think that what has been incredibly beneficial to me, and I know that I have many conversations with the directors about it, and we sort of joke about it now, is how do we do something that is both accurate and embodies the metier of of a spy show without feeling like a spy trope? feeling like a cinematic trope. We, I know we talked about so, so many. Of which there are so you many. trip and over them. It's hard yeah, not to. Yeah, and it's really hard to do. But actually, I've grown to embrace that challenge. I actually quite love it now. So, when, you know, whenever a new director comes on the show, it's, oh, listen, why don't we shoot in this in this garage that you know, could be right out of All the President's <laughs> Men. It's like, ah, no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> There's one of the many things that we can't do. And um, But... It, it's actually it's a great opportunity and it, it actually opens a lot of opportunities because you have to start thinking about things in a different way. Like how do we visualize these sequences in a way that gets to the heart of scenes that are inherently about espionage without making them feel like something you've seen a hundred times before. Yeah. No trench coats. Right. No trench coats. No 
uh, scenes in dark parking lots. Uh, and I, I listen, I, I catch myself doing it too. There was a shot in episode two that got cut out of the final episode, which was this sort of very um, a noirish high angle shot of these two guys in an alley, and, which I loved. But, you know, in, in seeing it, I could absolutely understand, well, this is, it becomes a little bit of a cliche. That scene with Stan and Oleg in the alleyway was one we struggled with on the page. We struggled with it in prep. We struggled with it on set. And we, and we really struggled with it. We struggled with it in editing. And we, and we made final adjustments to it on the mix stage, where we, we had various beautiful score options and I think ultimately peeled all of them we out did. Uh, and just let it play as a scene between these two people, which actually goes to what you were saying, which is a scene without any of those tropes, because music can be one of those tropes as well. Well, a huge part of that, and I think you started to touch on this, is the locations. And in a lot of our scripts, uh, we've gotten so stumped about where to put people for these spy scenes that it will literally just say interior spy location. And uh, <laughs> It's actually not because we got stumped. It's because we found when we would write something, right. that's the only thing they'd look for. <laughs> and that's not what we meant. And well, so, and it, by the way, it's a budget question to a significant degree, right? Because where you're going to go, it can cost a lot of money if you try to find this great place. And if we put just spy location, that's our way of saying wherever you already are, just find somebody near there. Sure. But it, it, one of my favorite spy locations has actually come in this episode where um, Yusuf and Philip meet in that room with all the uh, the columns where they talk about oh, what with the, Yusuf uh, owes Annalise. Sort of the, the closed down pool. Mm-hmm. And you watch the which in the windows, great which shots. Which was window. filmed, I believe, at the same place where the State Department press conference was held. Yes. Right. I think it's yes. called Ohika Castle. It's trite to say this. It really is. So I probably shouldn't say it. But but here we go. But well, <laughs> but but locations are in 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 effect characters as well, or they they certainly inform the mood of the scene, and they so they bring a, a quality of character to it. They tell us to, to the level of secrecy involved and required in the in these scenes: a, a desolate location versus a populated one, um, something that seems incredibly remote or. Um, burned out building, for example, versus something that takes place in a city park. So it, ha- I mean, it certainly has importance in terms of how, how it com- helps communicate the narrative. Um, I think the thing people will be talking about the most about this episode, though, is the breakup with Annalise, for lack of a more delicate term. Um, that sequence, I remember. Of- We're just going to let that go by? Oh, absolutely. Break up with Annalise? I think I I'll comment Break on up that. with Annalise. Yeah. I thought it was great. Even I remember in the script, the way it was written at our table reads, our producer, uh, Mary reads the stage direction and was speed reading it. And people were still just so visibly uncomfortable, just the way it was written on the page. Um, And then visually staging it was an incredibly complicated thing. How do you approach, Dan, a scene like that, which is such a complicated stunt and doing it in a way that's not... Well, that's both entertaining, but not, I guess, gratuitous. Yeah, what, kind of, what kind of person are you? Sure. <laughs> well, I think the first thing you do Why is... Why did you make us do that? Is you, <laughs> you approach it with great fear. Then the morning of, <laughs> you're sick to your stomach. Before you go on set, you go into a restroom, you throw up. And then you come on set, and, you, and then you pretend like you know what you're doing. <laughs> that's so weird. That's how I do my that, job. No, that's... <laughs> I find that as a pretty standard approach. <laughs> pretty effective. To all scenes, um, You know... And all jobs in show business. <laughs> when I read the scene, I think the first thing I said to James, we're not really going to do this right, <laughs> followed by something to the effect of, well, 
you know, how far do you want to go? And they said, I think something like, and I'm sorry, I'm, I know I'm paraphrasing, you can't go far enough. <laughs> well, I think we said well, you have to fold up her body and put it in a suitcase. <laughs> right. Well, before we get too far ahead of ourselves with the actual uh, doing of that, the, in the scene, Philip picks up the phone and calls Elizabeth and says some coded message like, there's more work here at the office than I can deal with. A lot of files. A lot of files. I need a little help, Elizabeth. And she <laughs> interprets that appropriately and shows up with a suitcase. Have they done this before? Is this the... Ah, yes. This is not the first time they've broken a body up? I I think the whole implication of the scene is that they know how to do this, which is pretty messed up. And we're trained in how to do this. Well, I figured they had been trained how to do this, but part of it's... It struck me that they almost had a shorthand that was like, show up with a suitcase so we can break a body Like down. they do it every week? I like don't it's think a they Thursday do it every thing, week. you know? I'd say every, every couple of years you got to break a body up. Gosh, what a bummer. So this this particular breakup involved you in the actual shooting. Twice, I'm going to keep making <laughs> <laughs> uh, Don't back down. An actress, if you make it twice, you should make it three times. An actress, a contortionist, and a dummy, and visual effects. Right. And how... In what combination? And prosthetics, I And think. prosthetics, right? You know, I will admit that I struggled mightily with the scene, all kidding aside, in terms of how to execute it both from a degree that it would be probably tasteful is the wrong word to use, but, <laughs> well, certainly visceral without being gratuitous. And it was obviously complicated because it involved a naked woman and it is a basic cable show, so there's certain things that we can't show as they're taking a naked woman and breaking her. But you also have to be sort of specific enough and graphic enough that you – I mean you want people to be uncomfortable but not turned off. In other words, uncomfortable enough to just sort of be on the edge of turning the channel without turning the channel. You just channel. want them to be screaming at their television a lot. Sure. Yeah. And I think that goal was achieved. And you want people to be essentially heartsick. I mean, you want people to be in the middle of it, brokenhearted for Philip and Elizabeth too, and for Annalise and for uh, I think and, that's, and Yusuf. And yes, Yusuf. it's really I a mean, scene about how these characters are confronted with the results of what they've done and the human cost of what they've done, and how each of them has faces and deals with that. That's how it's not gratuitous. Yeah. Also, there's the element that that you don't want to lose. You don't want her to become, for lack of a better expression, a slab of meat. You always want to maintain, even though she's dead, her humanity, that it's a woman who up to a few moments ago was a living, breathing, warm-blooded woman that Philip had feelings for. How did it work exactly on the day shooting the sequence using the actress, the dummy, the contortionist, and the prosthetics? How, how did you actually negotiate the filming of it? I got the contortionist and... Uh, our very talented stunt coordinator to work together to sort of act out the sequence for me. And I took photographs of it. Then translated those to storyboards. And using those storyboards, I continued to work with the contortionist and then a, um, a special effects makeup artist in California who created for us a... Um, articulated dummy that could bend backwards at the joints, but not only bend backwards at the joints, but also create the illusion in doing so that the sort of the, the bones were were starting to punch through the skin. I mean, it was it had sort of very specific mechanics had to be created. 
then um, sort of shot by shot, you would start with a real actress and you would start to bend the joint backwards and then the actress would step out and the contortionist would step in. You would start to push a little further and then you would have a cutaway of a, a reaction from someone and then you would uh, insert the dummy where you would actually break the joint and, you know, through the magic of editing, it all sort of seamlessly went together. Was it difficult to edit or because you had so meticulously storyboarded it when it came time to put it together in the cut? Did it snap together pretty seamlessly? So to speak. Pun intended? Always. <laughs> uh, I don't even care about the answer. I just wanted to get that pun in. No, yeah, sorry. No, it was good. Uh, <laughs> Very honest. You know, I actually think that, it, that that part of the process went together pretty easily because it, it had all been thought through. But the truth is that in television, you typically shoot four to eight pages of material a day. Mm-hmm. And I think we spent the better part of seven hours or eight hours on this one-page sequence. It was just very, uh, it was very detailed. It was it was elaborate. But hopefully the results are there on the screen. Well, as you say, you pick your spots for the episodes, and right. that was a spot. Well, you guys always talk about how do we define sort of a signature sequence in each episode. And I guess that was our signature sequence in this one. Uh, after we finished writing the sequence, Joe and I sit together in the vault, and Joe turned to me and said, we're going to hell. (laughs) (laughs) And we're we're taking Dan with us. (laughs) I'll I'll tell you actually what's really interesting about the sequence is what makes people jump or cringe is less the visuals. It's the sound. Oh, absolutely. The sound of the cracking. It's the sound of the cracking, and it's that's fairly atypical for something that's a real visual medium. Uh, the other huge visual set piece, or, or one that I really liked in this episode, was the arrival of the defector in that huge crate. And I know so much thought and research and time went into talking about what the crate looked like and how she would be sitting in it and all oh, these things. And This it's, is a great story. Yeah. <laughs> Here's, but it's only what, what uh, had originally been written was that um, the FBI and some brass show up at an airport. And the character of Zanetta is sort of moving through the immigration line or something like that and meets them and they say, welcome to America. And I said to the guys, it needs to be more, it needs to have more sort of pageantry to it. Um, right. I mean, so maybe there could be, could we have um, sirens coming to pick yeah, her up? So, we couldn't figure out why so, there would be sirens. So then, you know, much to the chagrin of the of our fantastic line producer, I said, this is what it needs to be. We need a jet, you know, like a, 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 a G, what is it, a G, G4, a private G plane. Yeah. 
Right. Then pulling the onto the tarmac. And the president. And, and a line of, of generals and staff and CIA. <laughs> we'll have the sirens there. Yeah, right. And, the, and, the, and, a, and a phalanx of cars with the, with the bubble lights going. I think I pitched this and to the And Mike Fucci, our brilliant location guy, got us a jet. Yes. And we found this. And we were in the process of putting it together. And we haven't seen Mike since. For anybody who doesn't know, this is expensive. Very expensive. <laughs> which is not good for us. Right. So then came the, uh, the bill. <laughs> it turns out the reason you don't fly pri- well you know why you don't fly, fly privately right. it's so, so we presented the bill to the Jays and I think the reaction was something like are you effing kidding me <laughs> so we were trying to figure out like well, what do we do and then Joe said I got it she comes in a crate and, it's with, and it's with most of Joe's suggestions there was silence followed by me saying you're joking, right? I mean, that's, that's a joke, right? <laughs> and they said, no, here's how it works. <laughs> and sure enough, this is how it works. It's an incredible introduction to this character. It's who's... the opposite of a plane. Yeah. <laughs> she was in a plane. Well, it's, in a crate. it's the opposite of flying in a private plane. She was steerage and, you know, Delta. Uh, but so where, where did this idea come from besides the reaction to a budget? Uh... This will be one of those weird podcast moments where I don't know that I really want to discuss that. Oh, yeah. redacted. Why are we redacting this? Uh, I worked at the CIA for a number of years, and anything I you know, write or certain things I say about my experience and work in intelligence, I have to submit to the CIA to get permission to discuss it. So there's certain things I just I can't talk about without permission from them ahead of time. Even with the redaction, you had, we had very, very specific goals on what the crate should look like and oh, how yes. she would be sitting in it. Yes. Well, we talked to our technical advisor who gave us a lot of information about just what this crate should look like and the oxygen tanks inside and how a person might actually survive in one of these crates Did or a person to be actually inside one of these crates. I believe he said – I believe there was an email from our fantastic technical consultant, Keith Melton, who said, I haven't actually seen one of these crates, but I've seen photographs. And and gave us a detailed description. Right, yeah. He has an he, amazing access. But here's this is actually one of the virtues of television is that is that sometimes in the pursuit of trying to find an economic way of telling this, the narrative, you actually land on something that is more interesting than what they would do in a movie because you you would tend to fall back on the kind of sequence that I long to do with sort of big scope and scale and pageantry and this is so much cooler it's it's so much more interesting it's like a scene out of uh, of a series that I know we all love like breaking bad where they find these sort of very unique kind of set pieces well and there's a final button on the story of that sequence which is on, on the day when that crate arrived it was just a blank crate and it didn't say any of the things that it needed to say on it. But through the magic of some visual effects. It now does. It now does. And <laughs> says exactly what it needs to say. It probably cost as much as getting that plane. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, well, so basically after all that, we should have just gotten the plane. But, but this is better. It feels like TV is like that all the time. When you end up with problems and you have to solve them because of budget or whatever it is, the solution you land on, you I just feel like you always end up happier at the end of the day. I, I, it's, I like, it's like life. Often boundaries make you better. Yeah, it does. Uh, uh, you know, a good example might be you don't have time to do a lot of coverage. For the podcast audience, <laughs> that's, you don't have time to do lots of different shots, say like a 
big shot master that shows all the characters together and then various angles that show close-ups, etc., etc. So you might construct something that's a one which is just one shot. And sometimes that's just amazingly great storytelling because it gets you into the head of the character or it keeps you on your edge of your seat as you continue to follow. You know, people who did that famously were, you know, uh, was in the show West Wing, for example, where they had these long walk and talks down the hallways of, um, of the White House. And actually, uh, Tommy Schlamme, who brought so much of that to the West Wing, has directed two episodes for us this season. So we'll talk more about him another week. But I distinctly remember last season when Tommy was directing an episode, he actually called from the set asking for more dialogue because he wanted to do a walk and talk, but there wasn't enough talk to go with the amount of footage he wanted to cover. <laughs> walk or walk. The amount, it was, or yeah. to go with the amount of walk. Yeah, yes. to go with, there, there was too much walk and not enough talk. And I just thought, I, that's not a problem. He probably has very often. No, uh, that's a guy who walks his talk. <laughs> yeah, that's a big honor to have Tommy Schlamme call for more dialogue for his walk and talk. <laughs> Can they walk faster? I don't know. <laughs> Can they walk faster? That's a good answer. I like that. That was apparently not the right answer. <laughs> I feel like we have to we have to talk about Nina's return. I mean, this is the end of season two. Uh, it seemed like Nina was gone for good. And when we come back here, another it, reintroducing a character in a, a kind of dramatic way is we find... Nina in prison, how much thought did you think about when or how we would see Nina again for the first time, reintroducing her to the audience and her new circumstances? Uh, you know, it was really, would she be in episode one or two? I think that's really <laughs> what that it boiled down to. We, we, I think that was one of the surprises of this season is last season, we told every story in every episode pretty much. And this season, we just decided that we didn't have to feel bound to do that. And so that was a big liberation to us. And I think that's why she wound up not in the first episode, but we were able to take the time to do it the way we wanted in the second. So obviously, a certain uh, several months have passed, really, between the end of season two and the beginning, the beginning of this season. It's great to come back and have a sort of not conclusion, but we don't see the trial. We well, don't see a lot of we, we what's talked, happened. We story. talked about that and we decided it was boring to us. Yeah. We had that story and we had a lot of very interesting all Russian details for it. And then we thought we just think showing that trial is going to be dull. It just ultimately won't be interesting. So it's all, all in backstory now. It happened. We're past it. She's been convicted and we're going to start there. And again, introducing a new character. Um we have this great scene with Nina and Oleg's father, who we've only heard about and, and we're meeting now for the first time. Uh, can we just talk about that scene a little bit and about this character and how Nina it relates to this guy that she's heard about maybe thinks that he's coming to the rescue? Well, well, we love that guy. It, it Minister is, of and, Railways. Yeah, and uh, Minister of Railways. And there's an interesting story there, which is in our first draft of the script, that was not Oleg's father. That was a different character who was there for a different reason. We ultimately changed the script and brought in the character of Oleg's father in episode two rather than episode four and changed where we were starting particular prongs of the Nina storyline. I think both because we wanted to activate things with Oleg more earlier and just because we were intrigued by telling that personal side of things. Can we talk about that set for one second too, Dan? Because like to me, I'm, you know, we're both basically obsessed with that set of Lefortover prison. We got videos of what the prison looked like and then sort of walked over here to the this side of the canal one day and there was Lefortover prison. Well, I think to our credit, we have a brilliant production designer in Diane Letterman. 
She better listen to the podcast now. Right. That's right. Um, I'm going to call her right now or <laughs> text her, let her know. One uh, more viewer. That's great. Right. <laughs> uh, but she was um, I, really instrumental in, in bringing that to life and, and taking all the best or the worst of La Fortova Prison and finding a way to create it on stage five here in the Gowanus. Scenic Gowanus, Brooklyn. I mean, it's sort of awesome because when you build a set like from your imagination, it is what it is. But when you see something copied from a video and then it looks exactly like it, I just find it mind-blowing. Well, I think better than La Fortova prison, to be honest with you. I think they'd be well served to take some of their prisoners <laughs> and set, if they run out of room and send them over here and lock them up here on Really? You set. think we made improvements? Well, <laughs> among the improvements, you can walk to Ample Hills Ice Cream Parlor just two doors <laughs> down. That's good. <laughs> Can't do that at Left Fortovo Prison. <laughs> Dan, what's it like to direct scenes that are happening in Russian as a non-Russian speaker? I have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because we have these issues. When we write, we write the the translation, we write the subtitles, and then we have discussions with the actors about what they're going to say in Russian, and we have no idea how to talk to them. What you have to look for is you have to be very good at sort of looking back and forth between the performance and the script, and you have to look for body language directing is is all about intonation and and obviously I can't tell the what the intonation is would typically tell me if I or if it would if I spoke Russian so you know you're looking for body language you're looking for those kind of clues and and oftentimes when you see the material cut together you're surprised like how you missed something or you didn't miss something that you just sort of intuitively got it but uh it's certainly harder. I mean, every director says, I don't know what they're saying. <laughs> so what, what do I do here? Our, we have an on-set translator, and she is an actress by training as well. Right. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of what she does is just make sure that the pronunciations are correct. And there's, you know, uh, a translation is an art, right? So many words that exist in English or many words that exist, say, in, in Russian don't translate literally in English. So there's always a little bit of parsing that out and determining what's sort of the closest to the to the writer's intention. But I would also say that, well, for example, the in terms of the performance given by the actor who, I'm sorry, his name has just gone out of my head, who played Oleg's father, he had a very specific dialect the, that our translator uh, felt really didn't seem appropriate for a man of his station. I certainly wouldn't have had any way of knowing that. And so it allowed me to work with the actor and lo and behold, he does another he does another performance, another take. And it sounds exactly the same to me. And, she, and I turned around and were like, I don't know what to do. And she gives me two big thumbs up. I did it. So, <laughs> it's one of those things where you're just, it's, I think it's the best application of lost in translation. We get all these responses, by the way, from we just are always hearing from fluent Russian speakers. And I would say nine out of 10 are like, oh, you're doing such a great job. We've never seen it done so well. The Russian is perfect. And then one out of 10 is like, the Russian is terrible. It's completely different from the English, it makes no sense. So, I, you know, we just don't know what to do with that. In the sports bar where they follow the CIA guys from the hotel to the sports bar, they have that tiny camera that they photograph the license plates. That's a real KGB camera. Is it really? Yes, it is. How do you 
what's the process like? I know we talk to our advisor, Keith, Keith, a lot. And then Keith works with our prop master, Duke. He sends us a real KGB camera. He tells us which camera they would use, and then he sends us one. How did he get it? We don't know. We don't know. No, I don't know. Keith is a key contributor and I think founder of the Spy Museum in Washington, He's one of the original guys. One of the original guys. And he has this incredible collection of spy memorabilia. And he just says, please don't lose it. <laughs> is this camera different than the one we saw Nina use in uh, season one when she was photographing the files? I don't think we used uh, this camera until this. this that is was a, a mini-ox kind. camera. Yeah. This is a different yeah. camera. Got it. Got it. So we have so many different ones. <laughs> we, we have a number of different ones. They, well, that was a sort of a classic Minox spy that, camera. That, well, right. then that the, had to be. Well, I think that was actually a lipstick tube or something. But that was an American camera because the idea oh, was the FBI gave, the, the FBI FBI gave it to that. her to set to set but up. But this is the Vasily. real deal. This yeah. is a real KGB camera, and it's fantastic, by the way, because you can operate the whole thing with just one hand. What size are the prints on that? I feel like they're quite small. <laughs> Joe Weisberg. <laughs> uh, it's an odd Hunt format. The Russian you. format is quite odd. It's a uh, three and a half by 4.25. Also in that bar sequence, we had a, a little bit of a cameo by a big fan of the show. And I know you guys are a big fan of him. Uh, Tony Kornheiser. Yeah, we had a celebrity appearance. Uh, what, what was that like? Did you reach out to Tony or did he call you? Or Well, it started with us hearing him say wonderful things about the show during the first season. And uh, we sent a letter to him and a, and a little and maybe a hat or something. And then uh, he responded back. And we just Be- because we- of the possibility that the crossover of the Americans fan base and his fan base is small. We should say that Tony Kornheiser is one of the most famous and important sports broadcast or sports commentators in America. Who is then sitting there in the scene watching a great boxing match? Yeah, we too. thought it'd be fun to have him uh, be there for in the sports bar. Yeah, it was the uh, Mancini fight, right? Is that what it wound up being? I think we couldn't get that one. I think it's the opposite. Yeah, we yeah. couldn't clear that we one. Couldn't clear that one. So no, we, we got, got Mancini. Oh, we got Mancini. I don't remember. <sighs> now we'll have to cut that whole sequence. Out. Oh man, don't, don't embarrass <laughs> us because whoever we got, I, you don't want to tick off the boxers. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, there's a. Guy who punches and a guy who gets hit, and, a guy, and that guy goes down. The point is, Tony Kornheiser's there. Yeah, we need Tony cheering. on the podcast to tell us what was going on. Yes, and that's he, right. he sent he sent the sweetest email afterwards, thanking us for having him on set, saying everybody was really nice, and that then when he got his extra attention, a, a lot of people came up to him and said, "Wow, how did you how did you manage to get all that extra attention?" And he told them he had won a contest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's do one last Let's question. do this last thing just about this last line because I know this was talked about a lot. The very last line of the episode um, is Elizabeth revealing a little bit more about herself and about her actual past to Philip, specifically about her mother, since she's getting this new information from Gabriel that her mother's very sick uh, and that she's dying. And there, while she's getting this information, she's grappling with, you know, what to do about recruiting Paige. And the episode ends on this line, when I was called, my mother didn't hesitate. And I know from being in the room with you guys, there was a lot of work and thought went into what is the last thing she says to Philip in this episode? And is this the right thing? And I know, Dan, you can talk about working with Carrie and Matthew on the the tone of this scene because it's the episode for all the action that happens in it ends in this very, very quiet moment on the floor of the the travel agency. I told her everything. I I didn't know what to do. She didn't blink. 
She told me to go and serve my country. When I was called, my mother didn't hesitate. How did you guys kind of arrive at that emotional beat at the end of this episode? We've, we spend half our time thinking about her motivations and where she comes from psychologically. I, I think that line really came out of those sort of endless explorations. Yeah, I remember walking with you and going back and forth on those very questions. And something that was so important to us about what that line suggested and where the episode ended is that it's a statement of love from Elizabeth and her perception of what a mother's love is and what love of country is and what values are. And it comes from such a a deep place. You know, I remember Dan talking to you after that and saying, I think that's one of the most beautiful scenes we ever shot. And you're probably like, what are you talking about? Because it's just at the travel agency, you know, so there's no... There's nothing around. There's nothing oh, I, to look at except travel agents. Uh, so the every every emotional possibility is so captured so beautifully. I think it's poetic that scene. Mm. And what's interesting to me about it is that she opens her heart to Philip. These are two people that are not very good at doing that. A married or fake married, but on so many levels, it is a real marriage. Where so much of what a marriage is about is is opening up and sharing these painful, intimate details. And it's something that they're terrible at doing. They're just, they're not emotionally or psychologically equipped to do so. And she bears her soul to Philip with the idea being of sort of bridging this gap and what it ends up having the opposite effect and sort of opening this gulf even wider. I think that's what I consider to be the sort of surprising thing of the scene. Well, I was going to say what you just described is so intricate and actually has like six beats to it. And you can actually follow that line of every one of those beats in that in what you just said, even though it's actually two lines of dialogue. And I just add that it's part of what makes the show magic when it's magic is that you could strip away the fact that they're deep cover Soviet spies and apply that to any marriage. At some point, there is that struggle between sharing and distance. And that's just a fear we all have. I think one of the things that's interesting about these two characters is because they are uncomfortable sharing with each other, they often resort to sublimating these fears and anxieties by communicating them through the characters that they play, these their undercover persona, with the people that they're, that they're trying to turn. And and that's how they can do it. That's the one way that they can sort of delve into these sort of deep emotional scars because they have a really tough time doing it with each other. That's it for this week. Thank you again to Joe, Joel, and Dan for joining us to discuss episode two. Next week, we'll be back here in Gowanus to talk about episode three, Open House. I'm Molly Nussbaum. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.